the heart of science is an essential balance between two seemingly contradictory attitudes, an openness to new ideas, no matter how bizarre or counterintuitive they may be, and the most ruthless skeptical scrutiny of all ideas, old and new. This is how deep truths are winnowed from deep nonsense. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Oh yeah, baby, Sagan. 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 Hail Sagan. I owe Lord Sagan (laughs) on the second week of January. A poignant quote in these times, I would say, Matthew, so well chosen. Crackers, people out there spouting crackers stuff absolutely but i've got some i've got a a, a good couple of guests this was an interview i did before christmas Mm. and was supposed to come out for our uh christmas episode but because the spod cat episode ended up being so um long (laughs) i ended up not putting it on the end because this is actually a very long interview in itself so it's with uh, a couple of artists one ian lauer who's an astronomer and an astrophotographer Mm. and Catherine machin who's actually a pretty famous space artist i didn't realize that i've been following her on twitter for a long time and 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 know her work actually really well Mm. she'll tell you about her art but one of the cool things is that it glows in the dark oh wow things that it uh, does nice okay i love it yeah she's she's a sort of crowdfunded painter yeah and uh, she's now the world's biggest crowdfunded painter wow or the highest crowdfunded painter amazing and uh, she's on her fourth campaign crowdfunding campaign to build a massive 3D chandelier replica of the Milky Way. Oh, yes. Based on Gaia data, yeah. Oh, nice. Yosh! Yosh! So I love that we've got, got like, you know, a photographer and an artist, and I think this is where science meets art, Matthew. This is where they meet. It's so beautiful. Yeah, well, that's the old steam thing, isn't it? The old science technology engineering art and maths oh and there is definitely something in it well i do a lot of stem workshops in schools and funnily enough i come from my company Mm. as creatives comes from an artistic background you know we're all you know we're all drama uh, people Mm. and actors and i've never heard that i've never heard steam yeah yeah well i mean because i mean I, i i do think it's like super important i think that that if you just do science or engineering in isolation it's like well you know, how does it connect on a human level? And actually, art really satisfies that end of it, doesn't it? Yeah. Hence, you know, Feynman was a great artist, and Carl the, Sagan was a great artist. I mean... Yeah, yeah. And is it is it a misquote by uh, by Churchill where they, you know, they were talking about, you know, cutting the arts budget during the war or something, and he said, well, that, you know, what would we be fighting for then? Uh, I might be completely misquoting him and it might be one of those memes that I've just got like a, I mean, I can't imagine that he was an arts budget during the war. <laughs> no, I'm sure there was, but I, if he did say that, that's very cool. Cause I, I always think the same thing It's like when people sort of say, Oh, what a waste of money the Olympics is. And it's like, well, what else are we doing here? If we're not going to do things like sport and art and everything else, it just, just seems, it always seems really weird. It's like, yeah, that the, the science is there to allow us to do art and sport. That's the whole point, surely. <laughs> just doing science for science sake. Interconnectivity. Yeah, yeah it's all interconnected. Uh, well, we talk about this. We talk about this in the interview, so uh, let's not spoil it. 
Uh, there's Wild a birthday to today of a chap that that really gets no mention ever. In fact, it was quite hard to find anything out about him. What? Was, um, on the 11th of January, 1926, a guy called Lev Dielman. Lev Dielman was a Soviet cosmonaut <laughs> who uh, went on Soyuz 15 in 1974. Now, I guess one of the reasons why you, you don't hear of him, because the mission wasn't that successful. It was supposed to dock with Salyut 3, the space station. Uh, but it didn't. It failed. The docking failed. Oh, no. But he he is the first grandfather to go into space. You know, he's got a first under his belt, oh. a one that will never be beaten. Give us a roll of your rocket, granddads. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So he's the first granddad into space. That's genius. He was Brilliant. an astronaut right up until 1982. He left to get involved in deep sea mm. research. Um, before dying of cancer in 1998. But, he, you know, he was quite old. How old was he? What, 1998 from 26 is 72? I think he was born and died on the same years as my grandfather. Wow. Was your grandfather the first person in space? <laughs> but, <laughs> he was also. But also, he, you know, old Lev here shares a birthday with my dear wife. She's, uh, it's her birthday tomorrow. So. Wow, there we go. Uh, sorry, today. Kaya shares a birthday with Lev Dielman, except Lev, Lev was born in Moscow. Lev, Lev, Lev was born in Moscow, and he's a doctor as well. He got a doctoral degree as well, as well as being a uh, Soviet Air Force Engineering Academy colonel in the Soviet Air Force. Mm. Pretty qualified dude, pretty qualified dude. Yeah, we salute, we salute you, Lev. So, you know, flying to space when you're yeah. sort of round about 50 just isn't that unusual. No. Lev no, was doing it not. back in 1974, yeah. back in 1974. He must have been a fit 48-year-old, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's what I, I aim to be when I'm 48. After having a conversation with Matthias last week, just on Zoom, mm. he looks like he's 30. I, it's just ridiculous. So yes, he's definitely fit. So yeah, I think you have to be fit to be an astronaut. There's no two ways about it. You can't go up as a big old out of out of shape. <laughs> Rotund. <laughs> you can't, <laughs> you know, be a swilling peanut peanut eating pie eating football fan. Probably not the best. Okay, okay. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna apply. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, stop rubbing it well, in. The weirdest thing about you is you're a scouser who isn't a football fan. That's the weirdest. You're almost like an outlier. It's just not in my my, my mindset. I, I do enjoy watching a game now and then. In fact, I wish I was in the UK so I could watch uh, Marine FC playing Tottenham Hotspur. Uh, Marine FC is a, is probably one of our most famous local teams. They're based in Crosby. It's bizarre. They're playing, <laughs> playing Tottenham. The cleaner from their building is the goalie and stuff like that. It's true. But yeah, enough about football. Enough about I can't football. stand football. Absolutely. What are we talking about? Absolutely ludicrous. Space Let's, news! We want some space, space news! news. Uh, before I do a bit of space news, I really, really have been very slack with shouting out to the Justins. I need to shout out to the Justins. This is so overdue. Justin Young and Justin Roberts, who are like mm. mega patrons at the most powerful level. Yeah. And without them, this show would be impossible. So thank you, Justin Young, and thank you, Justin Roberts. You are total legends. Thank and you, I'll, Justin Squared. Yeah, and I'll be reading out the rest of the Spodcats, most of whom joined me on the uh, uh, for our Christmas special, but uh, there's certainly a whole bunch of them who couldn't quite make it. 
and I wish they could because it would have been even more mm. of a party. But I'll mention them at the end of the show. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, shall we get on to a bit of space news? Yeah. And I guess this is obviously, you know, for us Brits, this is kind of cool. The Virgin Orbit Launcher 1 rocket, which may start flying out of Cornwall. Oh, might great. become the UK's first ever orbital launch, if it does. That's a big rocket. Well, Boeing 747 Cosmic Girl is is uh, flying uh, a bunch <laughs> of CubeSats, possibly, into orbit, part of the NASA's ELENA program, the Education Launch of Nanosatellites program. And actually, if you read you about all of these little satellites, they're absolutely ace. Cactus 1, Cape 3, ExoCube 2... Pix one, Pix two, Polar Cube—they're <laughs> all really, really, really cool. I'll give you—I'll give an example. So, Pix are a pair of two satellites, Pix one and Pix two, uh, PICS, and that's a technology demonstrator that uh, can perform inspection, maintenance, and assembly on another spacecraft. So, the two flight systems deployed simultaneously enable the collection of image data from each other as well as the parent spacecraft. So it's a sort of technology checker. And that's just one of all these tiny little CubeSats that are going up on this Virgin Orbit Launcher 1 this week. So that could be pretty big. That could be a big one. I know we've talked about this before, but what 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 kind of size are we talking about? I know we've done we've had an old episode on this, but I can't quite remember what, what size these little fellas are, these CubeSats. I mean, what, what what can we compare them to? Yes, 10 centimetres by 10 centimetres by 10 centimetres is one unit. But often they're several units put together. So quite a common one would be 30 mm. centimetres by 10 centimetres by 10 centimetres. Things like the Doves are like that. The mm. Planet Lab Doves are, are that type of CubeSat. They're, they're yeah. really cool because they allow you know, schools to get involved. And the, the NASA Eleanor program is really, really cool. Trying to get as many CubeSats into space as possible and, and helping people and giving them expertise and all those kind of things. So the Cape 3, for example, is the smartphone CubeSat classroom. If you've got the right smartphone app, it can act as a ground station and you can actually run experiments from, the, from your smartphone on the CubeSat, this Cape 3. That's so cool. So, yeah, that yeah. might be happening this week. or it, And if not, it almost certainly will happen at some point in January. Of course, this is a launcher that's not worked yet. So this is, you know, it's highly mm. risky. So all these all these um, CubeSats, <laughs> years of work, could all be destroyed very, very quickly in a, in a disaster. Let's hope not. Let's, let's uh, wish Virgin Orbit all the luck in the world on this yeah. one. Yeah. Very cool. Let's have some bit, some faith in those engineers. You know, yes. we've got one on our team who's a who, who knows who knows his he knows his onions. Come on, Richard Branson. Come on. Uh, this was a funny one that uh, Eric Berger I, I spotted um, was going on about. Roscosmos have apparently sued themselves. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, yes, Amazing. which is quite funny because so, yes, yeah, so, uh, Dmitry Rogozin, possibly one of my favourite people in space because he's so ludicrous. Um, he put on Facebook that uh, several years ago, one of the subsidiary com- uh, companies had used a, 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 a rocket to put a satellite into orbit uh, th- that they had also manufactured, and the uh, unfortunately the satellite stopped working. 
the legislation requires Roscosmos to uh, file a lawsuit against them. But of course, they're a subsidiary, so it's uh, essentially a lawsuit against themselves. But not only that, the guilty people mm. that were part of this broken <laughs> satellite have all left the company anyway. So his point was, you know, they're going to be punishing the enterprise full of employees who didn't make the mistake. Um, so, uh, but he also pointed out if they didn't start the lawsuit, the management of Roscosmos them steps, themselves would have to stand trial for failing to uh, uh, react to the mistake. <laughs> <laughs> so, this is brilliant. This is like a it's like a Tommy Cooper sketch. I mean, it's, it's, it's just like you know after two costumes on one side of you and one on the other. So you've got a barrister on one side and you've got the accused on the other. It's the same guy. Um, so if <laughs> <laughs> you think to settle, they might borrow money from the company so they can pay it. That would be great. You must have done those sort of exercises as a an acting student where you, f- you know, have to pretend you're phoning uh, yourself. Yeah, like, I, spent oh, three, yeah. I spent three years as a tree. <laughs> you know, <so. laughs> just, do, just doing that one piece of training. <laughs> So yeah, maybe you could phone up Dimitri. Yeah, but we, and weirdly enough, I, I weirdly enough, I did sue myself in the end for that. So for impersonating a tree. Yeah, I was thinking of suing myself for doing the degree I did. Sue old <laughs> yeah, Matt. Me too. <laughs> That's what clearly wasn't the degree I needed to do. What were you thinking? I'm suing old Matt. <laughs> just, right, um, really just <laughs> suing your former self. Suing your former brilliant. self. There must be must there must be a precedent for that. Talking of not necessarily loved government projects, um, there's the NASA SLS mm. hot fire test, probably this week as well, maybe. Ouch. Uh, which is, uh, yeah, they're going to fire mm. up those beautiful space shuttle main engines that are now going to be sitting at the bottom of the space launch system. And they're going to fire them up for an eight-minute mm. burn. It's going to be pretty... I'd, I'd actually, I mean, that Oof. would actually be pretty epic to be down there to see four space shuttle main engines blasting away for eight minutes Mm. yep there we go so and another looking forward to that looking forward to that sn9 will also probably have some form of static fire test if not it might even attempt uh, another sn8 hop into the sky and belly flop down onto the ground so you know there's there's two completely different ways of working right there these the governmental I'm all uh, about NASA, the belly flop. Uh, go slow, go slow, let's get this right. And the SpaceX, I'll just cobble it together in the desert somewhere approach. <laughs> and then yeah. and then there's Jeff let's Bezos's approach, which is just do the whole thing in secret and don't tell anyone what's going on. And uh, the only thing that has come out is that he's named the boat that's going to catch the new Glenn rocket, uh, Jacqueline. And do you know who Jacqueline is? No. There presumably is a woman called Jacqueline Bezos, who is um, Jeff's mum. Jeff's mum? Couldn't be more appropriately named. Mum has always given us the best place and best heart to come home to. Beautiful, huh? Yeah, that's lovely. That is so it sounds like a Scouse insult, you know, like your ma's a landing pad. You know. <laughs> your mum's so big she could be a landing pad for a <laughs> for the largest ever rocket booster. I landed a rocket on your ma. Yeah, I I reckon that you might get beaten up for being geeky. It's a sw- sort yeah. of switcheroo, isn't it, that? But Elon Musk overtook Bezos to become the richest Drink. man on the planet this week. How insane is that? 
and he he moved past the he's moved moved up two places very quite swiftly, hasn't he? Yeah, but it's all about Tesla. So te- the, the, I think the Tesla shares are just going through the roof because they've just become this really viable car business that's much bigger than everyone else. And of course, it's like, yeah, well, yeah. battery, you know, battery cars won't be forever, will they? It's like mm, they're kind of the future. So I can see that one just going on mm. and on and on, you know. So yeah, it's it's yeah. a strange one, isn't it? But yeah, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, both pretty goddamn wealthy, and they're both intent on getting into space. Lovely. Who stuff. would have thought that buying an electric car would get humanity on Mars? Oh, I saw the SpaceX Tesla Tesla Model X the other day as well, back in Norway, and the the the, the it must be the only one. There's a you know a Model X Tesla going around here with the registration plate SpaceX. I mentioned it on the oh, first yeah, episode yeah, that yeah, was yeah. on. I saw it again the other day, and it was in Oslo, and I was like, "Oh my god!" Trying to look inside to see who it was, but I don't, I don't think it was Elon. Well, I wonder. I wonder if they're a listener to the Interplanetary Podcast. If you are, why don't you uh, uh, let us know? It'd be great if we could get if, if, if we could connect, yeah, and maybe you. you can get lifts to work from him or her or or, or it. Or it might be a, yeah, might, of course, could it be could a be a dog. Could be a dog, or yeah, it might be just self driving. Maybe <laughs> I just don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, I loved Elon Musk's response to being the richest person in the world. He, he paused for a second to Amazing. go, oh yeah, I suppose, yeah. It's a bit of an odd feeling, being the richest person in the world that's ever existed. Well, okay, back to yeah. work. Back to back work. To yeah. work. <laughs> I'm, although I bet he popped some champagne with Grimes later that night. Yeah, I imagine he does it with a sword. You know, like they do, like like that sort of champagne manoeuvre. Yeah, chop the top off of a yeah. of a, a Moeton <laughs> Shandon with a lightsaber that he's been secretly developing. Get your laughing gear around this, Grimes. Sorry, I'm, I'm being all scouse today. Yeah. I think it's because I'm missing home or something. Get your laughing gear around this, Grimes. <laughs> we better be careful with what we're saying there. <laughs> Uh, yes. <laughs> oh, I see. See, what we've done. Uh, do you know what? Do you know what I haven't done for a long time, Chris? He's done a science story. Just haven't done a science story. Ooh. And I, this one, this one piqued my interest this week. So I thought I'd quickly do it before we go to the interview. Some astronomers, that is Lydia M. Oskinova et al., have noticed a very, very bright star, very bright in x-rays that must be a new type of star what formed from the merger of two white dwarfs so they yes they've spotted this new star now it comes from a paper called x-rays x-ray observations of a super chandra seeker object reveal a one and co white dwarf merger product embedded in a putative sn lax remnant which if that's not a great paper title i don't know what is so here's, so here's, here's the kind of rundown. So basically this very bright and unusual X-ray emission was coming from a star called J0035311. And it looks like that the explanation is that two white dwarfs have merged together. So a white dwarf is, is what our sun will become. It will, it will sort of start going crazy, burning the wrong type of fuel, expand, but then eventually it will collapse and the whole mass of it will collapse to about the size of the Earth, but the but the mass mm. of the sun still. So, you yeah. know, it, it will be a big, old, hot white dwarf in the centre of the solar system, but 
Chandrasekhar put a limit on how big these things could get before they would collapse into a neutron star. Obviously, if it gets too big, the whole thing would just collapse into a neutron star. If a neutron star gets too big, it collapses into a black hole. Um, I'm sure it's more complicated yeah. than that, but that but that's pretty much it. That sums it up for me. So if you have two white dwarfs smashing into each other, of course, it might be then that they go over the Chandrasekhar limit and would collapse into a neutron star. But this one is, um, that they've discovered this star. It's too bright to be just an ordinary white dwarf. So they've been looking at it, you know, doing spectroscopy and stuff and looking at the X-rays coming off using the XMM Newton, which is ESA's big X-ray space telescope. You know, very underrated space yeah. telescope, in my opinion. And we should talk about it more. I guess this is, you know, should be quite common because often stars come in binaries. So if you've got a binary of stars that are like the sun, it's off, it, it'll be quite natural that the outcome of that would be two white dwarfs eventually becoming a, you know, a binary of two white dwarfs. And then, of course, eventually yeah. they will sort of wind down and smash into each other. Um, Do you think this may have happened uh, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away? This probably did happen a long time ago in a, in a galaxy far, far away, which I must admit I did thoroughly enjoy The Mandalorian. If, if, if anyone hasn't seen it, you it's should see superb. It. It's amazing. As a tangent, I did ask if anybody saw the the little nod to um, to sort of modern rocket technology, but I don't know if you spotted it. Yeah. I hadn't watched any of them when you told me that. And then, of course, I instantly spotted what you were talking about when it happened. I went, oh, of course, that's what Chris was talking about. <laughs> yes, very It funny. was the same episode, not to, uh, not to go on too far of a tangent, but it was the same episode where they included a quite common British meme as well, where a lot of people who were raised Catholic, every time they hear, may the force be with you, their immediate response is, and also with you. <laughs> because that's a uh, you know yeah. part of the Catholic oh, yeah. Mass, and he says it um, in that same episode. The X wings yeah, are have... flanking him. He says, um, <laughs> uh, "Yeah, the Mandalorian says, uh, may the force be with you." And the pilot, there's a few seconds pause, and he's like, "And also with you." <laughs> and I was just like, "Yes, amazing!" <laughs> that is very so funny, good. isn't it? Yeah, well, we're here. So usually, white dwarfs, right? They're made of two different things. They're they're either carbon and oxygen. So it's just the carbon and oxygen mm -hmm. left. And they're known as CO yeah. white dwarfs. But if the if the mass of this uh, of the original star is sort of between eight and ten solar masses, so it, it will be big enough that the core temperature will be sufficient to fuse the carbon, but not neon. So you end mm -hmm. up with an oxygen neon magnesium star white dwarf, which are just known as ONE white dwarfs. Uh, that's capital O, capital N with a small e. Otherwise, it would just be one white dwarf, which would be very annoying. And it looks like yeah. this is a merger yeah, between both types, an O-N-E and a C-O white dwarf, um, uh, which means that it almost certainly went over this super Chandrasekhar mass limit. Um, and, you know, the X-ray indicates that, 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 that it was there was a massive episode of carbon burning during the formation and they can see this sort of point source where the where the X-rays are coming from, where the merger product is, and and the nebula, the sort of supernova remnant around it from all the the gas that's been coming off from these two stars as they went supernova. 
And it looks likely that the very sort of last part of all of this is eventually this enormous white dwarf, basically that's been a merger of two white dwarfs, will eventually collapse into a neutron star. So it'll take a few thousand years, but eventually it will collapse into a, into a neutron star. And would that be classed as one neutron star? It, it won't be classed as two. They've no. fused, they've become one. Basically. Yeah, so there, there should be some kind of weird type one supernova as it collapses. But mm. yeah, there should be some new supernova event. But of course, I, I guess they won't know what that looks like until it actually happens. And I mean, I guess they'll have some good theoretical models about what will happen. But I guess, you know, that it'll be really yeah. exciting. Now, now that they've spotted one of these things, I guess, is to look out for these types of supernova when these new types of white dwarf are actually collapsing into, into supernova. So that's, that's, you know... It's a really cool little paper. Uh, uh, you know, it's great in it well. that, that they're still finding new things out there in space yeah. all the time. Yeah, incredible. Just yeah. never ending. Yeah, we'll continue to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you asked me to do a news story. Do you remember? Yeah, yeah. What what have you got? What have you got up your sleeve, Chris? I've got an absolute beauty of an acronym, and I, knew, I know Jamie's very fond of his acronyms. Oh, I um, love an acronym. So too. this is. Um, this is the news of the uh, NASA have given the go-ahead for a new space telescope called SphereX. Um, SphereX. And it's going to help to unravel the mysteries of the Big Bang. And it's a beauty. It's about the size of a compact car. And it's hexagonal, this sort of hexagonal upright cone, which just looks beautiful. So you can Google that and have a little, a little gander of how it looks. But yeah, um, the actual, um, the, uh, the acronym is, wait for it, Spectrophotometer for the History of the Universe Epoch of Reionization and Isis Explorer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, oh, that is Isn't good. that great? It's going to yeah, launch I mean, in 2024, so it's very. It's going to be a fast, um, a fast development by the by JPL. But yeah, they've they've, they've given it the, the go ahead. In fact, it's in it's in phase C, so that just means that the agency has approved preliminary design plans for the observatory, and they can start basically going into a detailed design and start to build the uh, the hardware and the software. So it's a very exciting thing that it's going to be doing. So it's going to be detecting near infrared light or wavelength several times longer than the light visible to the human eye. So during its two year mission, it will map the entire sky four times creating a massive database of stars galaxies nebulas and many other celestial objects i got that from uh, scitechdaily.com um and it's good it's not too um it's not too sort of um sensational <laughs> the story actually um and I, I, if it goes ahead very exciting stuff it's part of the uh, medium explorer program tess icon and mm. sphere x so yeah it's it's a it's a funky looking funky looking thing, isn't it? It's well cool. It's beautiful. So yeah, looking forward to that. I mean that that's that, that's that's going to fly by by twenty four twenty five. I mean that that that's that's literally no time before that's up in the sky doing that. that so, it will yeah. combine all its measurements, won't it, with Euclid and the Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope? We're gonna we're gonna have just this this incredibly detailed uh, um, map of the sky, and like and as you say, we're discovering new things all the time. So. You know, hopefully this is going to throw up a few more 
yeah, it was incredible just incredible discoveries for us to report. Yeah, it was just it's just one it's just one more observatory looking in a slightly different wavelength of light that you can add to the yeah. big massive data pile to kind of eke out every single thing that you want to know about the universe. So cool. Oh my god. Yeah. I love things like this. It's amazing, nice isn't it? The launch, the nice launch, launch date being 2024. That's cool. I wonder what it's going to go up on. Yeah. Because so, it's only 69 yeah, kilograms. Yeah. So it's pretty small. Well, it it might it, even yeah. go up on a virgin orbit. Maybe from uh, from Cornwall, or what do you think? Oh, my God, that would be amazing. No way, though. Not if it's NASA. <laughs> <laughs> no. no. <laughs> it might do, I suppose. But unlike, I suppose if it was like the perfect orbit for it. But uh, who knows? Um Shall, shall we have a listen to this interview? I would love to hear this. Very exciting. Yeah, so go ahead. Hey, Kute. You're listening to the Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace back into space. So I'm joined on the podcast by Kat Machin and Ian Lauer, who are both artists, and this was something that came up on the Patreon feed. We wanted to talk about space art, have a nice episode about space art, and actually quite a few of the Patreons are astrophotographers. In fact, one of them is just unbelievably good, so this should be really, really interesting as well. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Matthew. So good to be here. Thanks so much for having us. Whereabouts in the world are you? Uh, Right now we're in the the UK, uh, but I'm originally from California and Kat's originally from uh, Australia. Well, actually, originally from the UK, but I normally live in (laughs) Australia, but we're back again because we just thought we would have another great, miserable winter and <laughs> the, with no sunshine. The best place. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's really, <laughs> a really good plan. <laughs> We're like, wow, we should do some astrophotography. Let's go to somewhere with 100% cloud cover. That sounds amazing. <laughs> and I plan to get out on the 21st of December to, uh, to take, see if I can get this picture of Jupiter and uh, Saturn right next to each other. The, see, this is one of the reasons that put me off astrophotography was that every time something amazing happened, it would always be cloudy. We, and we've had some really cloudy years, but but let's let's not dwell on that. And anyway, Kat, your your accent doesn't sound Australian. It sounds it sounds more Northern England. It sounds almost. It is. I'm a Stokey. But it, what happens is it develops to be more Stokey when I'm back home, and then when I go to Australia. So I'll say home and firing, but I'll say <laughs> looking book as well. So it's just everyone's like, I don't know where you're from. <laughs> yeah, <I'd, laughs> Where can we start? So let's start with Kat. Let, give us a bit of a background of what you're up to and, and yeah, the kind of stuff that you're doing and, and, and this connection between art and space. Oh, it's exciting. Firstly, obviously, I'm a space artist. I make oil paintings and digital artwork and soon to be lots of crazy 3D printed sculptures. So I specialise in glow in the dark, which I know is a bit of a weird specialty to have, but... I mean, honestly, like there's only one thing better than... Firstly, I would just like to start out with space images are like the best images ever. I mean, I as far as having things on my wall, I mean, and obviously I'm biased because I love space and I kind of get that. And hopefully everyone listening also likes space, but like how boring is having a picture of a bowl of fruit? <laughs> how boring is just some, I mean, actually some of it's actually quite interesting. Uh, I'll tell a lie, but you know, just like just generic rubbish that you see all the time. How much better is it if it's like a beautiful galaxy with all these sparkling stars and, you know, pictures of nebulae and just the Milky Way arching over and that 
strange strip of light isn't just a light patch. It's a bloody galaxy. <laughs> I mean, who wouldn't want that on their walls? It's amazing. And in my opinion, there's only one thing better than that, and that is space paintings or space pictures that are really big. Frankly, I prefer the scale. Yeah. And then there's only one thing better than big space paintings, and that's big space paintings that glow in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I'm doing. So, But obviously that is just like – so I've set up a business uh, where obviously I create artwork and about 90% of what I do are, are reproduction prints. A very, I only produce about 10 artworks a year painted because each artwork can take – three to six months, uh, sometimes longer. Sometimes I'm working on something for years. Um, so it's a slow process for me, but like I just try to put in an insane amount of detail. It's a lot of patience. And actually it's taught me, it's bloody weird, isn't it? But it's taught me a lot about human perseverance. Like I know that some people's things that, you know, climbing Everest, mine is just taking on a project that's so insane and so detailed that I have to literally physically sit in front of it for for tens of thousands of hours and just make myself do it. So um, mm. <laughs> yep. that's kind of what I'm doing, but that's the vehicle for kind of the bigger project. So what we're doing is all the, all the profits that we make from selling this artwork go into, are going into building a sculpture um, based on the Gaia space mission data. Um, but one of my purposes in life, and I think Ian's the same, is is just helping people see the stars because I think there's this, I mean, I say it all the time, there's a massive issue with light pollution. Anyone that does astrophotography will tell you, like, it's all, and especially if you're in, heaven help you from the U, UK, I mean, firstly, you've got to contend with clouds, as we were joking about earlier, but then you've got to bloody contend with light pollution and light pollution. I mean, that's the reason why you can't see the stars in the day because, I mean, the sun is the biggest light polluter, technically speaking, I suppose it's, uh, if you're arguing about it, but, right. But, you know, generally at night, you can't see anything because it's too bright. Of course, some of that is, you know, residual shine from the moon, but a lot of it is actually just human interference, lots of, lots of outdoor lighting. And of course you need safe streets and stuff, but then it stops you from seeing the stars. And that is bloody awful because I think we've all had those times when we might have taken like a trip especially people that have like gone on a boat and gone out to sea or have gone hiking or camping somewhere super remote or gone on holiday somewhere and they've just seen the full Milky Way. And when you see all of those stars, the, the light is so, it's so beautiful. It feels like it pierces your soul. Like it's incredible. And I really feel like as humans, we've been sitting under the stars telling stories of where we've come from. and you know, it's part of human evolution. And yet like the last 150 years or so we've lost it. Cause you know, it wasn't that too, it wasn't too long ago that we didn't actually have any street lights. It's, they're actually very new in the scale of it. I mean, um, it might feel like an age ago because it was mostly before we were born, but it's almost over only over two generations that we've lost the ability to see the stars at night. Um, and that, I, I feel like seeing the stars is actually very much part of human evolution. Our ancestors were, they lived and died by the motion of the stars, right? They helped them determine when to plant food and when to harvest, when the seasons were and all that. And they just, they, they relied on the stars so much. And it's like Kat said, we've lost touch with that, especially, especially recently. It's so recent that we've lost touch with that. And I feel like we need to 
to reconnect with that. I mean, again, like Kat was saying, both of our missions are to get people to, to see the stars more and get them to connect with the stars. And, you know, people who, we, we talk about light pollution a lot, right? We talk about how light pollution is a problem, but to people who have never actually seen a, a sky full of stars, it might not seem like it's that big of a deal. Like, okay, so, okay, we don't see stars, whatever. But I think the people who have actually gone out like Kat said, and see the full Milky Way or the sea of stars in a dark area, when they go back to the city or the suburb where they're from, and then they look up and they don't see that anymore, they understand that light pollution is an actual thing. It's one of those things you have to experience to understand. And so, you know, one of my missions is to get people to see that, inspire them to get out and see the Milky Way and its fullest form to see a sky full of stars because then they can actually understand what light pollution really is and what it's doing. It's like being a goldfish. I just had this occurred to me. It's like being a goldfish in water, right? They don't know they're in bloody water because it's just their environment, right? And that light pollution is a bit like that, isn't it? You know, some people forget. Like I did this thing on Twitter where I asked people if they'd ever seen the Milky Way. And like most of the people said, uh, you know, I've never seen it or I've seen it. And, and bear in mind, people follow me on, and Ian on Twitter are into space. And most of them had only ever seen it once, if they had at all, in their whole bloody lives. And then these are, you know, grown adults, which is phenomenal if you think about it and, and heartbreaking in a, in a way. Um, but someone said something that really astounded me. And they said, oh, what? You know, that thing that you, that's, that Milky Way streak you see in photos, is that, I thought that was just like a trick of a camera. And I was like, no, you meant to see it with your eyes, eyeballs. <laughs> to, to a certain extent, they are actually right. This is one problem I have with sort of wildlife documentaries and and, and astrophotography in, in some, I mean, I love astrophotography, don't get me wrong. But but in some ways, we we there are pictures that sort of hyper-realise things. Like even, even things like the Northern Lights don't look as great as they do as, as they're in very good photos of the Northern Lights or or, or of the Milky Way. You know, the photos of the Milky Way right. are, are better than you could see. Maybe if you're in the Atacama Desert and you've been lying on the floor for like <laughs> 10 minutes with your eyes shut and you look up, you might be able to see something that approximates a good photo of the Milky Way. But I, I totally, I t obviously, I totally agree with that, with that sentiment of disconnect between what is almost a birthright of having the stars above you and connecting yourself to your to your relatives and all the people that went before you i mean if you think about your connection with with yeah hunter gatherers that needed star information and the fact is that you know the, the ancient greeks like 3000 years ago had even spotted precession which is like this really complicated hard thing to spot and it's like yeah obviously the connection to the stars is 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 insane and and the fact that we are losing it i mean here's a question for ian actually or, or both of you actually uh, do you get excited when uh, the, i get depressed when winter's coming although in australia <laughs> this would be slightly different i get depressed when winter's coming and <laughs> uh but I get really excited when I'm walking home and it's starting to get dark and Orion's coming up and I, because there's so much to see in Orion that I get actually quite excited about it. And and it's just like uh, there's all these little moments of joy when you see old friends returning. It's so true. Uh, literally the other day I was coming out of a, I was still in my studio in my dad's garage and I 
I saw that there was a, a brief sucker hole and we could see Ryan and I went out and I went and grabbed Ian and was like, it is a star <laughs> So rare here in the UK, which makes me sad. But I, you know, I, I think maybe for people, more people who like stargazing or use telescopes, you know, anytime where it's nighttime is a great time mm. because it's always different every season, right? Winter, you've got Orion and the Pleiades and stuff like that. And then here comes summertime. You got the Milky Way out and you can get nebulas like the Lagoon Nebula and things like that. So, you know, really it just, whenever it's nighttime, it's a good time. <laughs> as long as it's clear, as long as it's clear out. Oh uh, yeah. And of course you've, have you both been in Australia and seen all, all those things that we can't see out here, like the uh, megalanic clouds and all those kind of things? So, See, that, that is major jealousy there, I have to say. Yeah, Kat definitely has seen it. Um, I went to New Zealand a couple of years ago, uh, and I, I was able to see the Maginellic clouds. And I, I got to say, it's it's surreal looking at them. It literally looks like someone, you know, when you get like a, a pencil and you just make a little smudge when you write your pen. That's what it looks like. Someone just took a pencil to the sky and scribbled in and then took their thumb and kind of just rubbed it out in, in the sky and you're just looking at it and you're like, is that, you're, you're like checking your eyes. What, is that actually there? Is that a cloud? What is that? First time I saw it, I thought, is that a bloody cloud or something? Oh God, we've got clouds in our scenes. And then I realized it was the Maginellic clouds because we'd gone out on a, a shoot. I mean, it's the first time I'd ever shot the Milky Way, and the beautiful thing about being in Australia is you're always two hours, depending on where you're at, two to four hours max away from a Bortle One class sky, which is a rarity, right? So um, we saw it, and it was absolutely sensational. It was really good, um, but yeah. So like basically, we I'm creating all of these things to fund this Gaia mission project um, because I feel like. I want to do, I don't want to just get things in people's houses. Of course, that's very important to me. But I also want to, um, I want to really share, like get people into it and help people see the stars on a bigger scale. And for me, I wanted to do a much, much bigger art piece. Um, this one is eight meters or 13 foot in diameter. And it's a chandelier um, printed in a crystal clear resin and suspended from fiber optics of the Milky Way galaxy based on Gaia mission data. And Gaia, the Gaia mission, for anyone that doesn't know, is um, a mission that is doing parallax, parallax mapping. So, you know, you hold your hand, arm out, hand out arm's length, close one eye, and then change which eye is open relative to the background. You can see that movement shift, and that's how they are. They're using that movement shift in, but looking at the stars to then coord, like position them in 3D space. Um, and, but the interesting thing is that the way that they do it is they, they're in the Lagrange point between the earth and the sun. So obviously it's like an orbit. So it, technically the, the satellite orbits with the earth, not uh, something, I mean, I suppose technically around it, but, um, it's, it's around the yeah. sun. And so it takes a bunch of images from one side of the sun and then it waits until it's on the opposite side of the sun to take another bunch of images. And then it starts to compare those, um, parallax data which is super interesting and then you can download it because it's free to access for anybody and it comes down as a big spreadsheet so technically you can download the milky way in a spreadsheet which i thought was pretty flipping weird <laughs> so in different chunks of course i don't think the whole of the milky way galaxy all 400 plus billion stars could fit in one sheet but <laughs> they did it they did it in sections yeah, yeah. 
Well, yeah, but in fact, they just they've just two weeks ago, didn't they, release the third set of data, which is like a big, massive chunk. Was that another 1.5 billion stars added to it? Right. To the- it's just amazing. And I, I heard actually the other day that um, six, uh, 1,600 papers have been written based on the Gaia mission data, which is more papers than the Hubble Space Telescope. It's probably one of the uh, – it, they're using it for uh, understanding everything from dark matter to the actual 3D structure of Earth. It's amazing what they're pulling out of that that mission's incredible yeah I, it, the Gaia was definitely value for money <laughs> it's, it's a really really great mission <laughs> yeah it's it, nasa are definitely better at selling themselves than than right. the european space agency but yeah i mean you know as uk taxpayer i i, I put a little bit of money in for that <laughs> as well so <laughs> so <laughs> i love gaia so are, are all your paintings that you've done are they technically related to space or or do you do you take a bit of artistic license or do you go or are you actually really sticking to uh data yeah so a little bit of both um i would say that as far as like coordinates as in like the position of of elements so for instance i will hand place every single star to be accurate obviously relative to the image but i might enhance things like the colors in order to make them look a little bit more vivacious and brighter, which of course, you know, the majority of images that we see in space aren't true color, but they, it's because often they're representing colors that we can't see. I mean, you can't, I mean, actually, this is a question I get often, which is like, oh, do you paint from photos or real life? And I'm like, well, firstly, I've not got massive telescope eyeballs um, with long exposures (laughs) built in, (laughs) because that would be weird. (laughs) Um, And also it's significantly hard to paint in the dark, uh, even with glow in the dark paint paints so um, it's pretty much a no (laughs) but um yeah so i use real data sometimes we capture that data with telescopes ourselves and then we incorporate that into or i incorporate that into my artwork um occasionally i'll use nasa data because you know i mean no one's got the hubble space telescope in the backyard in order to uh, take really highly detailed images um, so I'll use a mix of different types sources of data in order to create them in particular, but there is a lot of artistic license. And I think actually, even with normal astrophotography, there's artistic license. Um, what I realized, um, I've been watching Ian process data and what I realized is how much, so you can get almost a very, I'll say a very bland data set, let's say, and the amount of, and even like with the NASA data sets, which I've looked at as well, they, they often look very bland, very plain, and it a lot of work. And I think any astrophotographer will tell you, especially people that do deep, deep space, the amount of work that has to go into creating, um, it's not like it's painted in, but it, it's very finely tuned in order to pull out detail to, uh, you know, reduce noise, all of these different things that will then go on to create the final image or to, manipulate the balance of colors you know a lot of uh you know and some of it is actually just to correct issues in the sensors you know something sensors are very well apart from astro cameras which Ian could probably talk about most of the images that I've seen from astro stuff they always end up green yeah well (laughs) in fact I know I know Ian will, will back me up on this there's even like in the software is the green removal tool Really, you really have to get your eye in to sort of spot it because uh, it 
mixing a song and mixing in doing that processing of deep sky images is incredibly similar in the fact yeah. that you're you're looking at something for so long you can no longer hear it properly or no longer see it properly and it's 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 such an amazing parallel between the two it's, <laughs> i find it a bit depressing that the all art that I, I i try and do these days to get me away from my computer always means that i end up back at my computer <laughs> so, <laughs> but for hours on end like at three o'clock in the morning stretching some nebula to try and <laughs> right. bring out some uh, to bring out the colors of it and to try and get a bit more detail in the edges i see i wow. can't quite see the edge there and then they pull it out and oh no no there's too much noise right. yeah but yeah it's but it's it, you can you, always grab a sketchbook and do astro sketching like yeah i I kind of I got a soft spot for the astro sketchers the people that do the moon and things like that there's something really brilliant about it but you brought up a point that I was talking to with someone about a completely different subject, but about what's real. Because, right. you know, it's it's like, do you do you draw from your from real life? It's like, you know, when you take a picture of someone, yeah. you, you do know that, that photo's not real, don't you? And it's just like, it's right. really hard to kind of explain what, what on earth is real. So, I mean, <laughs> technically speaking, Matthew, what is real? No, like? well, yeah. All matter is mostly space. It's all vibration. <laughs> right, it's just energy. It's like, I mean, where you look close enough, the particles are popping in and out of existence and nothing really uh, exists. Whew. But it's so true, you know, someone, <laughs> you see here a lot of people who say like, oh, the NASA photos, they, they're just fake or CGI, or they're like edited, composite, you know, it doesn't really look like that. But it goes back to the point where you're saying, when you take a photo with your phone camera, it's, edited right it's you take the processed. photo it does the processing automatically and then displays the image to you where astrophotographers are really just doing the same thing but instead of that process being automated they're the ones going in and choosing you know what to brighten up what to dim down to make it look appealing so really it is the same thing as taking a photo with your phone camera just with different settings right i think a lot what a lot of people don't realize is that um yeah, a lot of the advancements in like phone cameras are actually all software driven. Mm. They're all like enhancements based. They're not technically real in that sense, I suppose. But I mean, here's the thing, like, you know, you have to represent x-rays somehow, like for instance, or if you're doing infrared imaging, um, you know, yeah, you can't see those with your eyeballs because your eyeballs are super limited. However, that data is picked up, you know, they're real energetic particles, be them X-rays, infrared, you know, or electric, electromagnetic spectrum, you know, particles, right? Whether they're photons, for instance, they're all part of actual data captured. It's just how to then interpret it. Because, you know, yeah, you can't see this stuff with your eyes because you need a long exposure because it's very bloody far away and very faint. Um, and quite frankly, I think sometimes it's nice to have a, I actually, I like, I like having those oversaturated and be, I mean, obviously I'm going to be biased because I'm a bloody artist. Um, but the reason being is that um, it gets people excited and into space. Now, of course, you know, sometimes you could argue in, in certain cases, it might set up a, a false expectation. However, that's, I don't think that's such a bad thing. I think often it just gets people started down a path of going, wow, this is, looks really interesting. I would love to learn more about this. Or like, what the heck is this galaxy? Huh. Yeah. I'm just waiting to 
for the day, they create, you know, bionic eyes that can do long exposures. Yeah. <laughs> then you can pick up the faint nebula in the sky. It's like, oh, <laughs> is well, it still I, real? <laughs> for, for me, the, the magic moment for me was when I bought myself a hydrogen alpha filter and, and, I, and I, I was in my light-polluted garden in Surbiton. I mean, it couldn't be right next to the A3, super light-polluted, but I was able to take the Eagle Nebula and Orion and 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 like with a hydrogen alpha filter, it was like, oh my God, there's the Horsehead Nebula. And it's like, there, there it is. I can take it from my back garden. However, there's a little bit of, and I, I would stick those photos on Facebook and people go, oh my God, and think I'm going to buy myself a telescope. And I always used to say to them, look, a telescope's a bit of a weird one because actually if you want to enjoy the night sky, it's much better to buy yourself a, a really decent pair of binoculars or just go out and, and enjoy the night sky for what it is because a telescope, just a telescope, is like there's a few objects out there that, that do look amazing through a telescope, but but it's it's a little bit misleading, isn't it, the astrophotography in that sense? Well, it's this whole balance between visual astronomy and, and imaging-based astronomy, and it's, you know, it's like the battle of two different types of astronomy. Yeah. And also yeah. the... What's the purpose of what you're doing? You know, if your purpose is to be scientifically accurate, then yeah, just don't, you know, and if that's what you're all about, because that's your passion, then sure. If you're if you're just about, you know, sharing your excitement of space, then judge it up and make it crunchy. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so well, presumably, yeah, I mean, like if you're the gen if you're the general public and you go to say the Taj Mahal. And, and you take a picture of the Taj Mahal. Presumably, you do your best to process that picture that you've taken to be in focus and maybe saturate the colour a little bit and just make it that little bit nicer. But the funny thing is we, we've all got the Taj Mahal in our back garden. If, if, we're, if we're able to do things like astrophotography, we can see the Orion Nebula. We can see the Horsehead Nebula. We can see all those things. And you think, yeah, you don't even have to go anywhere with, with astrophotography to, to actually capture something like that. Well, preferably somewhere without clouds. Yeah, yeah. I mean, (laughs) we do get the occasional day in England without clouds, I think. I mean, not for a long time, admittedly. Waiting for that cloud filter to come out. I've been been shooting this picture of Orion for three years and I've just got about two hours of data. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, don't even joke. (laughs) That's about it. So you talk about my real life. Huh? <laughs> I'm offended at how accurate this is. Yeah, that that is that is super accurate. Actually, wait, we 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 kind of were talking about. It. Can can you tell us a little bit about Hubble Palette? Because that that's that's something that comes up quite a bit, isn't it? Yeah, Hubble Palette. So essentially, what happens when you take? Um, let's use the Hubble telescope as the example, since it's the Hubble Palette. So the, the Hubble telescope has a camera on it, right? And that's how we get all these beautiful pictures. And it's a monochrome camera. So essentially, it's just black and white. And so what it does is it puts filters in front of it. Red for, you know, filters everything out except things that give off red light. Same thing with green filter and the blue filter, you know, blocks out everything except things that emit green and then things that emit blue. And then it combines all those and creates a real color picture, red, green, blue. Now, it also has special filters called um, uh, sulfur, hydrogen, and oxygen. Basically, what it does is it blocks out everything except for things that emit a very specific wavelength of hydrogen alpha or S2 or O3. Mumbo jumbo, but... And I would say for anyone that doesn't know spectroscopy, it's like if you get an element and you set it on fire... Basically, it emits light, but not at the entire spectrum. So obviously the spectrum going from ultraviolet to 
ultraviolet to infrared it actually just it's like peaks in like tiny little points mm-hmm. even though it looks bright it's not the whole spectrum and actually from being able to detect or just narrow it down to just looking at those tiny thin slithers and blocking out everything else we can just pick out that one element and that's kind of how the filters work is that right well yeah so pretty much the filter only allows in let's take hydrogen alpha because that's the one we said um when you heat up When hydrogen gets heated up or its ionars are excited, and I mean, aside from the science behind it, you know, it's falling energy levels, it emits a certain wavelength of electromagnetic radiation or light, right? And only that one specific one. And so if we want to only see that, it's going to get washed out by all the other reds and greens and blues out in space. So we put this filter in front of the camera that only lets in that one specific wavelength, like what Kat was talking about. And so we let in those hydrogen, oxygen, and sulfur. Um, emission lines. And when it hits the sensor, we get the data. And so what we do is instead of using red, green, blue, we use uh, this color palette, which is we assign the sulfur to red, the hydrogen to the green channel, and the oxygen to blue, which is, you call it SHO instead of RGB, that's called the Hubble palette. And that's how you get all these beautiful golds and blues and yellows and gorgeous colors. And the best example of this is the um, the pillars of creation mm. images that you see from Hubble. Those are taken in, I hate the term, but it's called false color, which is essentially what they're doing is they're assigning the colors. But, you know, the structures are actually there. The colors are just telling us what those elements are made of, right? So that's what Hubble palette is, is you're assigning it that very specific sequence of um, emission lines two colors, red, green, blue. I have a question actually, um, which you may or may not be able to answer. Like obviously being a great distance from the nebulae and um, you know, light stretches elongates because of course the warp of space. So actually even when we shoot it with a color camera, which majority of it turns out red because everything is massively dilated, you know, the time and space is dilated. So technically even when we shoot it with a normal camera, that's not actually how it would look like if you were up close. Right. As long as you're not like, dying in the vacuum of space, of course. (laughs) But it's true, right? Well, it's because we're taking such long exposures, right? Again, our eyes refresh. You could kind of say they refresh at 1 60th a second. So our eyes uh, shutter time, right, is 1 60th of a second, you know, but we're taking exposures of like 2, 5, 10, 30 minutes, letting all that light in Mm -hmm. and then processing it out to get an image. But, you know, the thing with like, Hubble palette, what we were saying, you know, you're basically reassigning the colors to make a really more colorful image. You know, your, your, your camera, like on your phone, already has filters built into it, right? It still is that monochrome sensor, but it has what they call a Bayer matrix, which is just a certain set of filters that are put over that sensor. So your phone camera is essentially doing the same thing that Hubble is doing, but again, just doing it automatically for you. Yep. Yeah, it's assigning... I mean, the, the funny thing with the with the Hubble palette is 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 that the sulfur and the hydrogen alpha, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, they're both reddish, aren't they? So, but yeah, so it's like if you have them both together, and obviously they're different parts of the structure. So if you have those two reds together, you don't see the the, the entire structure. But if you move one to, so it's a different color, at least you can now see that beautiful structure that's in there. Exactly. And, 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 and I think... 
Yeah, that that the nebula thing's quite a funny one because I think Star Trek has ruined it for everyone. The fact that they they often fly into nebulas, and of course that's just nonsense because <laughs> these things are so massive that if you were near them, you you probably wouldn't see the color even then because it's nebula. Oh, quite literally, it's, it's nebulous. Eyes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it's like it's very, very, it's very, very thin and very, very kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, right, yeah. and also like you know, it's like. I mean, it's like imagining looking out to, um, you know, let's say imagine you were looking across the, the if the world was flat, if it's not, mm. I'm just going to go that. But like, it's imagining like being able to. Here look, we go. No. Oh, no. No, what have you no, done? No, going there. Shit. Um, I'm just trying to use this as an example, but like imagine that you could see as far as, let's say, from the UK to America or back from, right? Mm. And imagining being able to see much distance. That's not a big distance at all. But, you know, the size of these nebulae are like, some of them are like 40 light years away. So imagine driving in a vehicle at the speed of light. It would still take you 40 years to get from one end to the other, right? Yeah. That's a lot. That's a big ass drive and definitely breaking the speed limit. Although I suppose relative time it would be anyway it doesn't matter i'm going into another yeah it's, yeah it's it's, <laughs> it's a hard one that one <laughs> yeah if, you, if you're flying into a nebula it's like yeah i'm flying into just what would be massively dissipated gas yeah. and dust and you know um radiation <laughs> and it's like but it's i mean it's huge they're the, bigger the, than we can imagine yeah i mean right? one what one fa- one fact that i i hadn't appreciated until i started doing astrophotography was the uh, and, and this was great, actually, because I'd I'd have my camera set up identically in my in my back garden in Surbiton, and I'd be taking pictures, and I'd take pictures of the moon, the sun, Jupiter, and and then nebulas. And I really got into doing nebulas, like for a DSLR on your on your telescope is it's like perfect for doing nebulas. So got really into doing nebulas, and then I've and I, and I realized, hang on a sec, all of these are the same scale that I'm taking, whereas the moon fits quite happily on my sensor, uh, Orion's nebula is actually slightly too big. And you think, well, hang on a sec. So when I look out in the night sky and I can see Orion's Orion's belt and the sword hanging down, I can just about make out the star that's the jewel in the sword that is where Orion's nebula is. And I'm thinking, so that little patch of sky there is bigger than the moon. So, right. it's, and it, so it's not even the scale of it that that we can't see. It's the dimness of the colours that's right. that's that's the problem, isn't it, for the human eye? It's not the <clears throat> scale, which is why I think sometimes telescopes are a little bit of a kind of misleading thing. It's not about trying to see something close. It's trying to see something, uh, trying to collect as much light as possible right. and right. and show it to you in a in a new way. Get those light buckets. Yeah, and so well, you know, one of the things that I really really um, love, like just going down the same path you're going where it's like, you know, the moon takes up the same or even less angular size than the Orion Nebula. When you think about the Orion Nebula, you know, thousands of stars are being birthed in that region. So yeah. it's, you know, this tiny region of, of, of space, this tiny region of the sky where we see this beautiful nebula and we get these awesome, colorful images from, that region is creating stars thousands of them that are the size of our sun or bigger. That's so crazy. <laughs> and are as far away as stars are normally as well. So it's like this thing's so vast. I mean, 
they're slightly more compact, I suppose, but it's still, the stars are still unimaginable journeys that we couldn't possibly undertake even if we wanted to. You know, we can't even get to Mars. And, and that kind of journey is so ridiculously small compared to this, the journey between any of the two stars that you would choose in Orion's Nebula that that you can barely see as one star when right. you're looking at, at it, even though it's about the size of the moon. It's just like, what? I, I love that. <laughs> You know, people like astrophotographers or, or astronomers, they'll throw the word light year around all the time. Oh, this thing's, you know, a thousand light years away. Or the Helix Nebula is 650 something light years away. Or this galaxy's uh, a million light, two million light years away. And then you think, you know, we've never traveled one light year. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that would be amazing. Uh, the, <laughs> the, uh, Going back to the chandelier, the sh- this, this chandelier concept it, it, is where will it be, and 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 if is the, is the purpose of it to, to sort of really sort of give you that sense of just the enormity of of the Milky Way and the, and the, and the, and the place that we're living in a kind of uh, a, a sense of home almost. Yeah, I think a little bit of all of that. Um, I think I think of the milk. Firstly, I think uh, someone said something really lovely to me the other day, which is that every time you go into a natural history museum, there's always the great big bloody d- dinosaur bones. Um, wouldn't it be amazing if you walked in and there was like just a great big representation of space? Firstly, that would be phenomenal. But secondly, when we see the Milky Way, be it enhanced or you know, or in person with our own eyes, we're only ever seeing it edge on. Um, and we've never really experienced it as humans in its 3D form um, as a physical aspect anyway. Maybe, you know, if you've watched, zoomed around it, something that's a artist representation in a video game, but never in, in person. And I think there's something very interesting about tactile and physical experiences. Um, so, and also, yeah, it's a sense of home, you know, the Milky Way. Uh, so I was once out at um, Uluru, which is this very um, sacred monolithic rock um, in Australia. And, um, I, they do this thing called dining under the stars. It's really cool. You've got, I was actually, you know, you get, you're all sitting on little tables outside and then there's a little buffet, which was awful, by the way, absolutely don't recommend that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) terrible food. Um, but, uh, at some point they turn the lights off and you can see all the stars, right? And of course, this is probably one of the remote, most remote areas in the world. And, um, it was interesting because, of course, I was there with my camera doing some long exposures because who bloody wouldn't have that opportunity? And uh, a guy came up to me and he's about 17. He said, oh, excuse me, ma'am, what, what is that? And I said, "That that's the Milky Way. That's, that's part of our home, as much a part of our human address as our street or our country or, you know, our postcode. This is where we live. This is home. Um, and most people don't think of it that way. Um, and I think that it'd be nice to sort of bring it into, you know, into an experience that people are going to just have a look at. And also, I just think it'd be bloody cool. Like, frankly, just it's big and sparkly and, and gorgeous and just something that would be just nice to just experience. Yeah. So dis- describe the experience. So is there, has it got at home yet or, or is it? No home yet. Well, no home yet. There's, there's a few potential places. Um, but I just knew that I had to build it and it'll end up somewhere amazing. So, so, so I walk through the door. What exactly what, what would I expect to see 
So obviously it's suspended by tens of thousands of fiber optics. So it is going to be illuminated and, and sort of kind of sparkly. Uh, it's going to look, I mean, it's going to look very galactic. And <laughs> I mean, I kind of have plans of having some sort of like spinning pads, you know, like how you have an office chair, but kind of like lower that you can sort of sit back and lie around and maybe get a little dizzy spinning around looking upwards, but have some experience like that so that you can just have a moment with the universe. Uh, I really value the, the, um, uh, the impact of a single image. Most of us who've got into space have had moments where we've gone out and we've seen an image of space or we've watched a documentary about space or we've seen a movie or read a book or played a video game that made us step back and go, whoa, this is actually really cool. So it's all about creating something so grand and so over the bloody top that people have that experience. Because in my mind, probably one of the most important things now is getting more people into and interested in space, whether they become engineers or scientists or communicators of some form, because ultimately that's where I, I believe as a human race, we're going to end up at some point in the near future. I hope before, unless we kill ourselves or before that point. Not <laughs> 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 to get too realistic. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, I, I think, I mean, we, we you can point to space as being like a, a big driver of, driver of the things that might save us in terms of it's been a driver of international collaboration, at least. Right. And it, it is. It's funny because I think that a lot of things are driven by space. Now, whether you believe that the universe is created by God or the Big Bang or whatever it might be, um, there's always a question of what came before that. And actually, all of religion and all of science is just people standing in different places trying to answer the question in different ways, right? Some people do it through, you know, whether they're religious practice or mysticism or whatever it might be. Some people do it by trying to make observations. But humans are driven by awe and curiosity, and we always have been. We've always been like the, what's that interesting thing over that hill kind of cult, you know, and that is why humans have been so successful. And I think that... Um, Part of the challenge with modern day living is the fact that it's so hectic. People live in these busy concrete jungles filled with traffic jams and endless Zoom calls and feel very disconnected from all of this stuff. But actually part of the core of what it means to be human is to be curious. And I think that there's nothing, what I love about space is there's no way you can look up at the sky and turn away and say, oh gosh, you know, Bloody, you know, you see all the glory of the stars and you go, oh, God, someone cut me up on the road, those bastards. You're not, you're thinking like, wow, this is insane. How far does it go? Why am I here? Like, this is incredible. Like, just the beauty of it. What does it even, what does it mean? What am I, do I mean? Like, you can't help but be, when you're presented with something so awe-inspiring to ask these big questions. Yeah, it, it takes you out of the mundane, doesn't it? Yeah, for sure. I actually genuinely think that there's always a bit of a kind of, a wrongdoing against scientists in some ways is the fact that that somehow if you're into science or into something like that, that you can't be spiritual. But, I, you know, you talk to any 
astronomer or, or a particle physicist and and they get spiritual about their subject you know it's it's like yeah. that that's what drove them to want to study the subject it wasn't like someone showed them Einstein's relativity equations and went oh th- that's exciting isn't it it's like <laughs> no that's not exciting that's not the exciting bit it's I think for things like these art projects I think are, are so important it's yeah. in terms of that's the thing that will excite you it's not the hard work that you have to do to then further all that knowledge but it's it's the it's the thing that says this is this is why it's going to be worth it right this is you know all those people that worked hard to make the Gaia space telescope and all those people that interpreted the data the payoff is we get to see this we get to see the extra yeah. the extra kind of stuff visualization and that what it is to be human from that hard work right yeah i think there's like Sometimes there's kind of this like art versus science standpoint where people maybe will say like, oh, you know, artists don't understand like what's happening with all the stuff that's going on in the inner workings. But then, you know, artists say that science makes things dull, but they're both, you know, they need each other. And I think Mm. um, space and art go really well together. Astrophotography, I'm biased, but (laughs) as an astrophotographer, but I think astrophotography is the ultimate melding of science and art because you're using data, right? And all this equipment, you know, you have stuff that needs optical engineers for the telescopes, you know, uh, electrical engineers to make all of the parts move and and sensors and cameras work. Yeah, software engineers to make all the software work, you know, and then you need photography and then you need, you know, the you need the clear skies, you need all this stuff to work to create a piece of art. And so you're using science to create art. And I think it's it's so amazing um, to, to have the two worlds melding together. And plus the things with science too, you know, we we're discovering all of these new exoplanets and, you know, we're living in this age where, you know, if, if you were born after 1994 or something like that, you know, you, you live in an age where we've always known that there are other planets around stars where before that, it was still just maybe, who knows, you know, but yeah. with thanks to science, you know, now we can have, we can, all these artists are imagining now what it's like to live on another world. And you see these artistic renditions of, you know, living uh, on a planet that orbits a red dwarf and things like that. And so they kind of feed each other. It's like a positive feedback loop. You need science to inspire art, to inspire science, to inspire art. It's, it's, it's a beautiful cycle. All my here, all my science heroes, the Feynmans and the Sagans, you know, they're they're, they're totally. I mean, they 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 sell that story bigger than than anyone else, right? I mean, like <laughs> Sagan forced Voyager to turn round to get the art, not not for the science, but for the art of it and and the connection with with human beings. I think what the the really fascinating bit that we were talking about before we even pressed record, by the way, was you've both got a, an amazing journey, which I think is actually quite. Uh, inspirational in terms of people might be listening and going, oh, you know, I've got I've got this hobby or I've I've got it as a you know something I want to do. But both of you have made like a, a livelihood out of it and 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 a really good one and and you're and 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 you you've turned your passion into something that you're able to 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 do full time. So it'd be great if you could kind of both of you sort of go into how you've managed to seem to do what what I guess some people might think is impossible. I thought it was impossible. I I still pinch myself because I I was very much 
and growing up with the get a real job. Kind of, <laughs> I don't know how many times I was told that. <laughs> and that's why I avoided most of my life being an artist because I had also, not only did I grow up with the get a real job, but also this massive stigma. And I still have this, I still feel, right, it's stupid. I, I run an insanely successful six-figure art business, right? But I still feel embarrassed to tell people I'm an artist because I always oh, have this impression. And I say it all the time, but I just have this impression of people like bumming cigarettes and stealing, you know, sleeping on people's couches, just being like, oh, man, you know. But what I really, I mean, but you, it just depends on the, the way you perceive it, really. Um, what we are is people that can visualize data, uh, whether that data is emotional or whether that data is scientific. It's just a way of visualizing data in an interesting and engaging way. Uh, that's a very dry way of looking at it. But um, part of the biggest leap um, I made was making the decision that I was unhappy where I was, which I think is difficult for most people because I'm an eternal optimist and I'm, I suffer from this the, the worst F word in the world, which is I'm fine. <laughs> right you know what I mean um, I hate my life and I hate this job and I don't like my bosses and my co-workers and I hate being in traffic but I'm fine it's all fine it's fine I don't mind you know, whatever it's all good I, do you know what I mean I don't have any life outside my work but it's fine whatever you know I was that person um I'm so optimistic I didn't even see how like miserable I was until I had a massive nervous breakdown which I know it sounds really awful to say but it's the best thing best best thing that ever happened to me and I highly recommend every have everyone have one make it a big one if you're going to have one the little ones don't necessarily change that much they just stress you out make it really big schedule it in for some time this next year I'd say um but what it did for me was it's a hard reset because I was working insane hours I was working 12 to 14 hours a day seven days a week for three bloody months um, and after three months, I had it because I, and I, you know, how people say oh, I work two, three full-time jobs. I'm like, how, how is that even physically possible? Because I couldn't, I didn't have time to, sometimes I didn't have, I, I just got home and I had time to sleep for six hours and I have to get up and leave. And I would only be conscious in my home for 15 minutes. And that was enough to get changed and wake up and leave. <laughs> like there was no time to go food shopping or do my clothing. I couldn't have a relationship or a life. I couldn't enjoy myself. It was basically probably one of the most miserable times of my life. Um, and it took me getting to that point before I realized that actually you could actually go on and do something you really love instead of doing something that you don't. Um, what I realize now looking back is that you don't actually have to wait until you're having a nervous breakdown in order to make the jump <laughs> oh thank goodness for that you can skip the the years and months of misery but also I felt like and I know a lot of people have this which is I felt like I was living a life with no purpose um I was running a video game studio very successful uh making very successful video game titles um and uh, which was great you know but um, I was miserable because I didn't, I felt like my whole life was around creating distractions for people. It wasn't necessarily around, you know, bettering people's lives. I, I, I literally, you know, games are cool when I was a kid, you know, and I still like playing games. Don't get me wrong. But then I was like, is this it? Like, is this what my life is going to be? Is this, is this really it? 
am I going to die? Like, am I going to, is this, is this it? And I'm sure everyone has it. Is this it moment? And uh, if, if you haven't, it's coming. <laughs> right? Unless you're one of the lucky ones that just instantly found your life's purpose and, and good on you if you have. And so, and I didn't know what to do because I'd spent 10 years um, avoiding being an artist. So I studied engineering, firstly, bad move. No, it's a good move, but I spent most of it drunk, to be honest. Sorry. I know you're a university lecturer. Well, no, well, well I, I, like I said, I was the worst. I, I did engineering and spent most of it drunk. Yeah, it's the same, um, the same deal. <laughs> but, you know, but it's funny. What well, the best thing I learned at university was how to. I used to DJ and I, I learned how to run an event. And actually, it was that being able to promote myself as a DJ um, and being able to promote an event that has actually been one of my major successes, both in my video games. I mean, you know, because I had to take things from initial IP contracts all the way through to development, production, management, then PR, then advertising, then post and, you know, looking after services. And then, of course, community management, which, of course, you know, dealing with uh, teenage and middle-aged man babies no, <laughs> and ladies um, who were very angsty, uh, gave, taught me a lot about community management Um and that was interesting. Uh, so I got to this point where I couldn't take it anymore. I just couldn't do it one more day. So we'd finished the game development and then I'd obviously gone on to, um, I, I just didn't know what to do. They were going to go on to the mobile development and I was like, I quit. And that was probably the hardest and scariest thing because I realized at that time I could never go back into video games because I, I was now at a point where I was massively overqualified for everything. And I felt like, I had literally lost my life. I spent 10 years building this career. This was the only career I knew. I knew nothing else. Didn't know how to paint, incidentally. Like, I mean, I'd done some painting in high school, right, which in the US would be equivalent of junior high, um, and a little bit in college, which is the equivalent of high school in the US, right, when I was like 16 or whatever. But I didn't know what to do with my life, and... Uh, it was the most glorious moment because I got to do what I actually wanted to do because I had nowhere else to go because I'd already felt like I'd lost everything. So I thought, well, you know, can't get any worse than this. So I might as well just do what I enjoy. And I remembered that I loved making art when I was a, a little kid. And I was like, I've seen Bob Ross on TV. I'm going to give that a go. And, um, Literally, it's as simple as that. I set a New Year's resolution. This is actually a New Year's resolution gone horribly wrong. Um, (laughs) I set a New Year's resolution to start painting. And that's actually where it all really came from. And actually, I was going to write the resolution of having an exhibition because I thought that was a really cool idea. But I thought, you should calm down, Kat, and uh, learn how to paint first because that's probably (laughs) more important. Um, so instead of drawing me having an exhibition, I drew me painting and I just literally, I was working then as a cleaner because I'd been so reliant on them. So, you know, I was just, uh, while I was in video games, cause I couldn't run my own life. I thought, well, that's kind of a worthy cause. Maybe that's where I'm meant to be, which it, it obviously wasn't, you know, my destiny wasn't to scrub people's toilets for the rest of my life. As I then found out after doing it for a while, which of course it's a really useful, you know, it's there's nothing wrong with being a cleaner, of course, but it just was not for me. And um, yeah, so then we decided to launch Kickstarter um, because one of my friends had suggested I should host an exhibition. And I went, wow, I was going to write that as a as a New Year's resolution because at this point I'd been posting stuff on Facebook and getting lots of 
engagement. And someone said, you should, you should do it. And I was like, A, I like a good party and B, I like space. So I was like, if I can get a room in, I was in Sydney at the time, hire a room in Sydney, fill it with loads of alcohol and fill it with loads of space and we can all get blasted and look at pictures of space and talk about space. And I was like, that sounds amazing. Of course, drink responsibly. Um, but my plan was... In Australia, I, I find it hard to believe. Not <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, but English, yeah. good old Yeah, we do like a good drink here. Um, so my, my foray into business was actually all spurred on by me wanting to get my friends drunk. And it really was as innocent as that. I just wanted to get... I just wanted to talk about space and have a good time. Like I didn't, I wasn't planning to change the world. I wasn't planning to do these big almighty things or create this, you know, um, spirituality in the stars mecca under a gigantic chandelier. I was just trying to have a good time with space. It's, I, it was just basic and visceral and just creating that sense of awe and fun with people. And that's where I saw it. And I thought, well, if I can raise $4,000, I can hire a room. I didn't think about if I can raise this amount, I can, you know, pay me bills and stuff. I really wasn't considering that at the time, um, which, you know, I was cleaning during this whole point, um, you know, hundreds and hundreds of homes to just try and get me through this period. And uh, yeah, we didn't make $4,000. I was physically sick when I launched it because I've never sold a you know, I've never sold a space painting before in my whole life. And I thought, A, I've got to be honest, my paintings were terrible back then. They weren't the worst, don't get me wrong. They, they weren't, they were all right, but nothing comparative to what I'm doing now. They were pretty rubbish. This idea that you have to be super amazing in order to, um, to sell artwork, you actually don't. Um, even as an astrophotographer, what you need to do is talk with sheer conviction and passion about the subject, not about the, you know, no one really cares about the actual paintings so, so much. They care about the space and what they mean because every time they look at them, they, the, what's more important than the image is the meaning behind it. You know, when people, astrophotographers come to me and say, hey, I'm not selling any prints. I'm like, well, you're not, you, you know, if you just go, oh, I know, I made took a 30 second exposure and I used this filter. No one gives, <laughs> no one cares. Yeah. Uh, talk about what space means to you, why it's beautiful, what it inspires you to be. Talk about the history of it. Talk about what you're seeing. Talk about why it's important. Talk about how it makes you feel because people connect to that. People don't connect to, oh, you know, this one I thought I tried 24 cent exposure because the last one I got star worms, right? No one, because no one cares about that stuff. I mean, maybe other astrophotographers, fine, but they're already making their own images. You're not selling to those people. Yeah. Of course. Um, yeah. And we didn't make $4,000. It, it ticked up. It was, you know, we'd made 4,000 in the first day. And I was like, I had made zero contingency for doing any more than that. I was like, wow. And then it went to 10 and then 20 and then 30. And then after 30 days, we'd made $70,000. And I was like, Whoa. Oh. I, I said, holy, um, uh, this is my job. I'd been searching desperately because I, I didn't know what to do. I knew I couldn't be a cleaner for the rest of my life. Even if I was, I was then at that point, then running a business doing cleaning, I didn't want to do that. And I didn't want to be, I couldn't be in software development. And I, I laugh about Ian talking about making scientists and artists work together. And I was like, that was my life, making software engineers and bloody a graphics team cohesive. Because <laughs> there was always a challenge yeah. with that. And the same with anything, you know. Um, 
but yeah, I was like, wow, this is my job. And I thought, wow, this is bananas. Like what a bloody fluke is what I came to mind. So after I finished that and I served the project, I actually went back to working as a waitress because I thought that was never, that's never a thing really. Obviously I'd taken a few commission orders. So I was painting those as I was going, but bear in mind for this whole project, I was only working three or four hours every weekend because uh, I was working a full-time job and doing all this other stuff around it just to try and make ends meet at the time. Um, so here's the thing, you know, if you've got time to scroll on Facebook or be on Twitter or anything, you've probably got a spare four hours somewhere. I mean, I know it's hard for people with kids and stuff like that. Um, so I appreciate this is easier for some people than others, but if you've just got a few hours, a few hours every weekend for eight months was enough to create that first campaign, which bear in mind was almost the same amount as what I would earn as a top executive. And it took me 10 years of grinding insane hours to get to that point. And I'd done it in eight months and a few hours every weekend. And it's totally possible. And of course, this is a great thing. You never guess what, we're all connected to the internet and we have ways to talk and communicate. And as long as you can talk about something with conviction and passion, and I, I say this over and over again, but talk about what you're doing, get your face out there, even though it feels weird like it's unfamiliar. It feels almost like, ugh. obviously you, Matthew, you obviously spend a lot of time lecturing and you, you know, recording these and hearing yourself back. Can you imagine when you start, you're like, Oh God. You know, I, 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 yeah. I can't listen to the first episode of the podcast. That's for sure. <laughs> it's so bad. <laughs> but that's the thing, you know, it takes practice. You know, we all start, when I started painting, I was rubbish. First off, when I started communicating science, I was rubbish also, but you've got to go in, And also you've got to be rubbish and put yourself in front of people. So you've got to be able to be rubbish in front of people. Woo! Cause I mean, you can be a rubbish painter and never show anyone anything with science communication and social media and that stuff. You can be rubbish in front of people. It's, it's, you know, I've always wanted to try doing stand-up comedy, but oh, the idea of being that terrible and bombing out in front of people terrifies me. So, but you got to start somewhere, right? And uh, so I was working as a waitress in a curry house, mind you, and I stunk of curry. And it was actually technically less than minimum wage. I, I don't know how I worked that one out. But anyway, uh, that was a big, big boob on my side. I stunk of curry, like stunk. And it was terrible. And I didn't even get tips because bloody Australians, you got to learn to tip, man. Anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> he was laughing. Um, and then I thought, hey, wait a second. That last Kickstarter was all right. Let's give that a go. And I thought, well, 70 was bananas. That's never going to happen. Um, let's try 12. That seems more reasonable. Let's go for 12 and let's see how we do. And we brassed, we breezed through 12 in an hour and it kept on going up 50,000, 100,000, 150,000. And it ended after, I think the next one we did was 50 days. It ended at over $250,000. And now I was like, all right, I get, I get the message. This is actually my goddamn job. All right, whoa. Um, I'm you know, quite surprised I, you didn't get the message at 70, to be honest, but there we go. <laughs> well, I was really indoctrinated with this idea that you couldn't be a successful artist. I still have to battle with that every day because I was told it so frequently. Well, I, I mean, I, I, I was guilty of it before we came on air, right? 
Right. But that you were only repeat, we repeat the messages that we were told as kids, right? It wasn't necessarily a message that came from you. It's told to you by someone enough times that it's embedded and it was, and it's still embedded. I work, I have to work every day at saying like, I would honestly, I would do everything. I would do all my housework. I would do the cleaning and do my book work before I would stand in front of an easel because I still fail to recognize that as actual useful, productive work. I was like, this is a bloody hobby. Go bomb a cigarette and lie on someone's couch. Why don't you? Sort of thing. Right. But actually it was not, it's like productive work. So I have to work on really hard at overcoming that myself, which I know sounds really rubbish, but like we've got humans are we you know and human psychology is a weird thing especially if you've been told something enough times so yeah anyway after that I was like right okay let's get onto it um but this time we developed a whole printing method we invented a method of printing with glow in the dark which it has never been done before and hasn't been done since we've got we've got now a new technology which we're in the process of patenting um that allows us not so the problem with glow in the dark is that um, they they come as crystals, um, and uh, the bigger the crystal, the longer the glow lasts. But of course, you can't. It's very difficult to suspend big crystals in liquid; they just sink to the bottom and therefore clog things like expensive printer heads. And especially for me at that time, because we were printing with a printer that was forty thousand mm. dollars. Not great if you want to clog that printer head because each head is like a couple thousand dollars plus service fee and all the other. Um, you know, delays it creates. So we created an entirely new way of printing, um, which is great because I feel like I stuck one to the man, <laughs> whoever that man is, HP. I went to go see them. Sorry, HP. Mm. I love you. Um, <laughs> them, or at least someone um, in one of their showrooms and um, spent some time with them and said, you know, hey, is this possible? And they were like, it's absolutely impossible. It's never going to work. You can't do it, which is the best thing to tell me because I'm always like, I'm going to prove you wrong. <laughs> so we then went and invented it and they eventually invited us after we showed them a sample. Uh, even when we were showing them samples of what we were doing, they were like, wow, this isn't possible. I'm like, well, it's in front of you. <laughs> and they invited us to go to their headquarters in um, Israel to show them what we were doing. And I politely declined because, of course, <laughs> I need to finish my patent first before I show them anything. <laughs> But yeah, so now, you know, I've got a team of nine people and the way that I did it was literally to promote myself properly, put myself out there. And I said, I say this all the time, but you know, some people don't put themselves out there. They don't promote the work. They'll sell prints. Astrophotographers, I'm looking at you guys. They'll sell prints and they'll just do one story and they'll be like, oh, I've got, I've got some prints, bye. And that's it. You won't hear from them about it for months. And then they go, why have I not sold any? And I'm like, because... People have to see that you're selling something at least 20 to 25 times before they make the decision to purchase. 20 to 25 times. That's a lot of touch points. And it's not just seeing your artwork. They have to see the message of, hey, you need to click on this store link here. Um, Have you got any other advice on on this kind of topic? Yeah, I mean, you have to sell yourself. Again, we were talking about this before. I think we turned on the Mm. microphone, but you know you have to be able to sell yourself. Um, we were saying like, you know, every person who is successful in what they do is a salesperson. And we have to get rid of the stigma of salesperson equals car salesman. Cause that's not what it is. You know, <laughs> you have to be able to, you know, whatever it is, sell your story to people, sell your ideas, you know, sell your excitement to people about what it is you're doing. Cause people, there are people who want to eat that up. 
They mm-hmm. love that stuff. They love astrophotography. And I think Kat, Kat nailed it with this, where it's like a lot of astrophotographers don't talk about how cool this stuff really is. They they really just talk like they're talking to other astrophotographers while I use, you know, 30 exposures on the red channel and, you know, 30 exposures on the blue channel. It's like, yeah, but, you know, sure, other astrophotographers might find that interesting, but the general public, they might not even know what any of that means. What they want to know is, what am I looking at? What is this thing? Where are these colors coming? How did you take this? That's so cool. You just break it down and make it so simple. Make it something that they can connect with. Because if you can connect with something, now that you have that connection with them, you can bring them along on the journey. And it gets them more excited about the product or service or whatever it is that you have. So if you're selling prints, right, you want to be able to make sure that people can connect with that. Um, Because no one buys a print because you took a, you know, five hour exposure. They buy the print because, you know, it's something that gets you excited, which then in turn gets them excited about it. And it teaches them something or reminds them something, that emotional connection. Sorry, you know, get yourself in front of people, talk about why it's exciting, why you love it. And you'll attract, I think the saying is your, your, uh, your vibe is your tribe. Is that how it goes? That's true. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So that's quite a good one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you're going to attract the people that you want to attract as long as you're being authentic and yourself. What, what is your success? What, what is your, has been your journey um, to where you're at now? Um, well, I mean, so I actually come from a science background. I studied astrophysics uh, at university. Um, but, you know, I actually realized that I didn't enjoy research as much as my peers, you know, my peers have gone on to work for LIGO or they're getting their PhDs and things like that. But for me, I just, I loved spending time by the telescope. I loved the the school's telescope that we had. And so I, I realized like there's something about, you know, the night sky that I want to pursue. I just didn't know what it was yet. Um, and I think a lot of people can kind of connect with that, right? Like they, they, they have something that they like. It doesn't have to be astronomy could be, you know, music, for example, like what you do, you know, maybe they're not uh, a musician, right? But they love music and they want to figure out how can they make a career out of it. And so I was kind of in that position. Well, what can I do with the night sky and my love for the stars without having to go through what seems like everyone goes through, which is you have to study hard and get your PhD and then you do research, you become a postdoc for a hundred million years you have low pay, you get paid almost nothing until you find a, a research job somewhere, something like that. I was like, I don't want to go down that path. And, you know, props to people who do do that because again, they do it because they're passionate about it, but I wasn't passionate about research. So I had to find something and, you know, I got an internship at a telescope manufacturer and I was like, I like telescopes. So let's see where this goes. Um, and eventually that led me to another company uh, where I literally started by processing orders. I got hired by a company called OPT. They're the top telescope retailer in the world. And I started out processing orders and answering customer service phone calls. And after four years, I worked my way all the way up to becoming the director of marketing at that place. And we be, you know, we had some of the best years of my life were, were working there because I learned that I loved astrophotography. I never knew that I had a passion for it until I worked there. And I think it, what it really says is that you, it doesn't matter 
you know, what you, you what you're doing, if you enjoy, um, um, sorry, I lost my train of thought there. So you were working at OPT and getting into astrophotography. um, Yeah. So, you know, I I got into astrophotography without knowing that I liked it. And I think the the point is that you don't know what's going to come about when you go down a path. I think the important thing is you just have to pick a path. One of the, the sayings I love is action before motivation, right? We can't always be motivated or inspired to do things. Sometimes we just have to make that decision to do something. Mm -hmm. And I made the decision to go take a a smaller paying job to work at OPT because they did astrophotography and I found it interesting. And all of a sudden I was surrounded by the best astrophotographers in the world. And I was developing systems and imaging systems, telescope systems for, you know, government uh, institutions, educational institutions. I was developing imaging systems for, uh, for professional astrophotographers, for people who do like, uh, space situational awareness that track uh, space junk and stuff like that. And I never knew any of those things were even possible. I just knew I liked telescopes, right? And I was like, well, I'll try, I'll try, you know, this telescope job. And it was so amazing. But I found that astrophotography was my passion. And it's so funny because when I was in high school, I actually took a photography class and um, I wasn't a great high school student. Um, you know, I was, I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that, but I was not a great high school student. I was focused on playing football and hanging out with my friends and playing video games instead of, you know, paying attention in class. So when the semester ended, I realized, oh, I'm failing photography, literally a class where you take a camera and click the shutter. And I was failing it. I was like, oh my God, I, I went to the teacher and I begged her. I was like, is there anything I can do to pass this class? Anything I can do? And she kind of just sat there and thought for a moment. She looked at me and she grabbed a, a, a brush and she's just like, all right, here, take this, take the scrubber, go scrub the dark room, clean it. I was like, <laughs> oh, okay, whatever I got to do to pass the class. So man, I scrubbed the heck out of that dark room. <laughs> I made sure it was spotless. It took me like two or three hours to clean every little detail, every little corner of that dark room. And she passed me and, you know, I thought that was it for photography. Maybe photography is all for me. You know, and 15 years later, here I am. I'm a photographer. I, cause I, I am now taking pictures and making a career out of it. So again, you know, it doesn't matter what your past, your past doesn't define who you are. It doesn't matter what you used to be into or what you, you know, used to not like, or what you used to be bad at, you know, your past doesn't define you. It's just action before motivation, just do stuff because you don't know where it's going to take you. Mm. And so I think that's kind of where I'm at right now. It's like, I never thought I'd be a photographer. I still had a hard time calling myself a photographer. I think astrophotography and regular photography are two separate things. You know, one talks about, you know, uh, shutter speed and f-stops and the other one talks about focal length and you know 30 second one minute five 10 30 minute exposures just seems like two completely separate disciplines um but it took me a while to finally you know see that they really are the same thing and uh you know opening up a, a print store of mine really made me realize okay I'm a photographer now <laughs> so what happened after OPT well after OPT you know, I was working there and uh, I think this is something a lot of people can relate to. So I'm, I'm, I'm 30 years old and, and, you know, I I turned 30 this year 
I woke up one day and, and I had this feeling of just like, what am I doing? What is it that, what is my true calling? I think a lot of people get that and then maybe just think about it for a bit and then push it to the side and then just go to work or something. <laughs> <laughs> Have their yeah. cup of coffee and forget about it. But that, that it kind of kept coming up, you know, every day of just like, what is it I'm doing? Why am I doing all this stuff? You know, why am I, you know, working 10 hours a day again? You know what, you know, okay, I am doing like astronomy stuff and, and I do really enjoy sharing astronomy with people, but, you know, working those 10 hour days and, you know, having these, these, just having to continually fix stuff at work. I just, I felt like I was disconnected from my passion with astronomy. You were working mainly in the marketing aspect mm -hmm. rather than, you know, really doing the actual astrophotography or being under the night sky. Exactly. I wasn't doing that stuff. I wasn't taking pictures. It was taking time away from me actually getting out under the stars. Or one of the things that I love to do is set up, do sidewalk astronomy, where we set up telescopes outside of a, uh, a science-themed bar and point it at the moon. We get to have beers and drinks and, you know, point the telescope around and look at Saturn or Jupiter or the moon and just, you know, get drunk and talk about space. And I, I couldn't do that stuff anymore. <laughs> Sounds like my kind of party, I'll be honest. <laughs> and so, you know, I was just, I, I was starting to feel disconnected with astronomy and, and I, I really just wanted to find how can I get reconnected again? How can I bring that passion back? And, you know, what I realized is that it being out under the night sky is what I loved doing, you know, as much as I loved sharing space through, you know, a company's social media account or, you know, getting people the right equipment so they can share the night sky and take pictures. I kind of wanted to be on that other side. I wanted to be the one who's, you know, sharing the night sky, not the one who's give, you know, selling them the equipment to share the night sky. And so I made the decision to leave a high paying, stable, career path, you know, as a director of marketing at the top telescope retailer in the world and make the leap into the unknown and try and figure out things for myself. And that's a scary thing to do. That's a scary thought for a lot of people, myself included. Um, but one of, one of the sayings that I love and I repeat to myself every single day is if you're scared to do something, but you need to do it, then do it scared. And so Mm. I made the leap. I told my boss that, hey, here's my two weeks. I want to pursue the thing that it is I love, which is getting out, taking photos uh, of the night sky and sharing it with people. And I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm, I'm going to do it. So made that leap and I found a way to, you know, make income, which was selling prints. So it seems the lot like the logical step, right? Okay, well, I have to make money now. So I guess I'll sell prints. And so, you know, I, again, with, with the help of Kat, you know, she kind of guided me with like, well, you know, here are kind of the things that work for me. Maybe they'll work for you. Uh, promoting myself, putting myself out there like, hey, guys, I'm launching a print store. You know, I, I hope you guys enjoy it. Like showing off all the different kinds of designs. Again, showing people as much and as often as possible how passionate I am about it, how cool these prints are, how much I love space and how much I know they will love these prints. And I launched my store and I had over 200 orders in the first 24 hours for my print store, which is insane for me. I was, I was happy if I got, you know, 50, you know, but I had over 200 print orders, which blew my mind knowing that people wanted this stuff in their homes. And I realized, okay, I, 
that was that moment where I'm like, okay, I'm a photographer now. (laughs) (laughs) This is what I do too. A successful one at that. So what kind of things did you learn by, you know, in the process? Because you you also had to do a lot of processing, which is not necessarily... Oh my gosh. I have processing and look, I had almost zero experience with things like Photoshop and Lightroom and even the more advanced astronomy software like PixInsight and things like that for all you astrophotographers out there. <laughs> Which, get yeah. on PixInsight. PixInsight, <laughs> yeah. No, uh, PixInsight, that's me, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. And man, such a powerful it's, it's unbelievable. But, it's unbelievable. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> like you said, the green remove button. <laughs> I must say that, God damn, they need to hire a user experience or a bloody user interface person because I have oh, never yeah. been so attacked by buttons i was like this is this user interface it's actually disgusting it's it's the worst it's it's genuinely the worst but yeah you try and find if you've forgotten where something is it's like oh good luck with that then <laughs> it's, it's the res- their user interface is the result of when you get like you know uh master's degree and phds in mathematics and yeah. software engineering <laughs> and it's kind of forum based isn't it it's like oh we want this okay yeah we'll put that in somewhere yeah, just but, jimmy this button in. Yeah, exactly. It's it's jerry-rigged. <laughs> no, you spend more time Googling how to, like, just use the curves tool. Yeah, where, yeah, yeah. Where is the cool curves yeah. tool? You're there for five hours. Like, I found it. Oh, man. So, picks and sight. Yeah, all you ask photographers or budding ask photographers, if you want to step your game up, picks and sight's the way to go. But How did you learn that stuff? Well, I just Googled. thank thank god for youtube that's all i can say seriously and that's the thing again it's like if you don't know how to do something dude you have the internet the internet is so powerful you don't have to go down to the library and check out a book anymore and learn how to do something you you can freaking google it man you got the the answers to everything you need on your laptop on your phone like it's it's amazing the technology we have today to help us become more self-sufficient um, but yeah, so back back to the, the the print store. I think what I one of the biggest things I learned was after you know my print store was successful. And granted, this was only a couple oh, a couple weeks ago, right. about a month ago or so. Yeah, it's fresh. <laughs> new, new. I had I had astrophotographers messaging me asking me how they can sell more prints, and you know they're direct message me on Instagram. These accounts have like. 50, 100, 200,000 followers. And they, they're telling me that they've never sold that many prints before since they've been around. And so what that told me was, you know. And Ian, I, Ian for reference, Ian's, Ian's <laughs> which is an amazing amount, actually. You've got about just a. I got 2,800 followers, 2,800 Instagram followers, 2,000 Twitter followers, and like 100 Facebook followers. So, you know, let's say I have five, a following of 5,000. There's other people who have 100,000, 500,000 followers. They could barely sell any prints. And so they're messaging me asking, asking how what's your secret (laughs) what it taught me was it doesn't matter how many followers you have it's what are you doing to bring value to the followers you do have because there are people that are just chasing more followers they think more followers will mean more sales but it's like well if you're if you're spending all your time chasing more followers you're leaving behind the people who are actually there for you the people who have been there since day one following you when you had one follower you know, what are you doing for them? What kind of value are you bringing them? And so I, I, I think the ultimate lesson is connect with the people that you already have, you know, connect with the people that are following you already, because those are the ones who want to see you succeed, you know, and by launching the store, 
they tell their friends about it or they buy them as gifts for their friends. And then their friends tell their friends. It's just like this, 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 yeah, this cascade of, of people just all of a sudden now you have this influx of people who are interested in what you're doing. And, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say I'm the best astrophotographer out there, but people look at my work and say like, Oh my God, this is so incredible. And, you know, you do astrophotography yourself. I'm sure when you show people who aren't in that bubble, they're blown away by what, what you can do. And I think it doesn't matter if you're the best or you're mediocre or you're pretty good. It goes back to that idea of you're show, you're doing something that not a lot of people are doing. And that's going to blow people's minds. There's going to be someone who does it better. There's always going to be someone who does it better. But you have that connection with the person who's reaching out to you and saying, this is incredible. I think also a lot of astrophotographers don't put themselves out there because they say, well, I can never be as good as Hubble. You know, so, you know, why would anyone want my stuff? Well, people don't, I mean, as much as people want the beautiful images, of course, but people are more excited to connect with your passion. It is more important to put your face out there and say, I really want to talk about this. It's so exciting. People will literally want to support you just as a pause, of course, your actual passion and excitement about it. I mean, the thing is, I feel the most unqualified person to talk about space because I don't have a degree in astrophysics. I don't have, I mean, I I studied engineering, but I'll be honest, I was definitely drunk for the most part of that. Um, I definitely didn't finish my course. I definitely didn't, like I I passed a couple of years, but not all of them. And so, you know, I feel woefully underprepared. And I thought, well, what gives me a right to talk about any of this stuff? And actually I realized that even scientists they talk about stuff that they've not necessarily discovered. They've read a paper on it or they've read some article. The best thing you can do is just make sure that what you're saying is factually correct by doing some good research and just share how bloody cool it is. Like it's as simple as that. And honestly, don't feel, I think, I think one of the people's biggest problems about selling something is that they feel like it's all take and no give but actually what you're doing is because and i mean you'll we'll all know this if you go into a store anywhere you can buy a million things with pictures of flowers on you can buy a bloody toothbrush holder and a rug and uh, artwork and all sorts of things you can find millions and millions of things with abstract patterns and all sorts but you can't find anything with space you have to go through specialist stores you have to do google searches it's not easy it's not there for everyone So what you're doing is allowing people to have probably, in my opinion, space is the most beautiful thing that exists in the universe, happens to be the universe. (laughs) And you're allowing people to have those little moments. And I did this, I did like a little survey because I said, what is, what is the purpose of my art? Because I was like, do you mean, I know that it's helping people see the stars, but like, like, I was like, real talk though, like what, what is, because, you know, like how do you summate the purpose of art? And everyone, you know, the overwhelming response was, hey, I have a hectic life. I am stressed. I am overwhelmed. I'm exhausted, especially this year. Heck, 2020 has been a year, um, right? <laughs> when I look at your space images, it reminds me that there's something bigger than what I'm going through and there's something more beautiful And um, I was like, wow, okay, I'm not just sharing a connection with space. I'm sharing people a tiny piece of beauty and release and, you know, and, you know, and peace that they can have in their home. So when I, you know, I'm not, I, the idea is as an exchange of value, like I'm giving people something that will make them actually really happy. Um, 
And in exchange, if they feel like it's worth enough, they'll send some money over. And that will hopefully help fund these other bigger projects we've got going on in the background. Where can people go and see your work, Kat? And where can people go and see your work, Ian? Where, how can they get involved? Yeah, so um, uh, ianlowerastro.com is my website, or you can follow me on any social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, they're all Ian Lauer Astro. And uh, yeah, just hopefully, uh, if you want to learn about how to do astrophotography, or if you you know have questions about you know getting telescopes, or even if you just want to talk space, I'm always game to talk about that stuff. So don't be afraid to just reach out and say hi. I love space. I know Matthew and Kat <laughs> and everyone live here listening loves space. So let's talk space. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Um, for me, uh, Catherine Machin, but both my first name and my last name are weird. So uh, if you just Google Catherine Machin, it will correct you. I, 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 will, I, will st- I will stick both. I will stick all your links. Email me over all the links that you want me to put on the on our website, and I'll stick them. I'll stick oh, them all up awesome. and ev- everything. Uh, so it will all be it will all be in the normal show notes place. Yeah. We awesome. Thank you. Awesome. If you were to bring someone back from the past. Uh, I would bring back, if I have to be quick, uh, Richard Feynman. Feynman's the best. Kat? <laughs> um, I would love to bring back um, Einstein. I'd love to bring him back and be able to show him the results of gravitational waves. Hey, we actually found them. And just just to have that moment, I think that would be just insane. Yeah. yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, I mean... I think there's a, even someone like Stephen Hawking. Apparently, in the last couple of years, that the, the movement there has been so amazing that mm-hmm. that even bringing him back, he'd be amazed. So, so right. like, so someone like Einstein would be like, "What the heck?" Because <laughs> yeah, he 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 knew that gravitational waves would exist, but didn't think that they would be ever large enough for anyone to ever detect. So he just said it, detecting them would be impossible. But they're there. But yeah, right. yeah it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, Final question then is: Is our we've got a space song playlist? Um, is there any song that you uh, a space song that you would like me to put on the playlist? Oh, oh, and you're not you're not allowed to have Bowie because obviously <laughs> we got to, we got enough Bowie on there. <laughs> so I'm a, I'm a big huge fan of of metal music. I don't know if everyone else is, so maybe I'll do one that's not so intense no 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 the guests should have what they want you can have what you want Uh, otherwise otherwise it'll just become boring and bland (laughs) go for the metal go for the metal i love supporting small artists so i'll do one that's uh maybe a little more obscure it's a a band called being b-e-i-n-g and the song is called cosmonaut oh Oh, that's a good one beautiful beautiful proggy metal-y but still kind of 4-4 beat song oh right i'm gonna check that out i'm a bit of a prog metal myself though (laughs) oh i don't even know what to pick i'm like i have so many things i like i wish i as a substitute question you can tell me about your t-shirt i can see you've got tereshkova ride jemison and ansari Promoting uh, just women in space would be kind of cool. <laughs> I always think a good space song to have would be Mustang Sally. Got the lyrics, Ride Sally Ride, which I always think. Oh, boom! <laughs> On that terrible bombshell. <laughs> I'm gonna have to wrap this up. Thank you very, very, very much for for coming on and 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 doing like what a very inspirational chat. Awesome. Thank you, Matthew. Definitely. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. The Interplanetary Podcast is alive! There we go, Chris. That was two artists 
basically showing that you can actually, if you want to do art, make quite a bit of money from it, <laughs> that you can make it a living out. I was actually <laughs> found that very interesting <laughs> myself. So yeah, yeah, I think, you know, that's, that's yeah. good for podcasters and YouTubers and artists. Get out there and, and do your thing. Who knows? Who knows? You might be overtaking Elon at the top of the richest people in the world list at some point. I've got to mention the absolute legends that are the Patreons, and I really cannot let this go any longer. They are the wonderful, and as I declared on uh, on Discord this, this week, Bob Hodges, who is my favorite human being of all time. He's out there working the weekends injecting old people with the vaccine and getting as many people as he possibly can safe from this scourge. He's a legend, I tell what you. What a Bob legend. Hodges. What and a legend. Thank you so much for the work you're doing, Bob. And then there's yeah. John Benek, who keeps sending in his exploration photos. Very, very cool indeed. Karel Sim, salutes you. Kenton Hokanson, Marissa Davis, James Wood, uh, Ronald Hatcher, Tupper Hyde as well, Stash Shusha, Rob Annabel, Mark Schoen, Malti Keisling, Christopher Andreasen, Gene Watchtanik, Gene Watchtanik, Patrick yes. Haywood, Alden Vala from Norway, which is pretty cool, isn't he? Mm. He's up there. You should. Tusen Tag, Tusen Tag, Valdebra. Jordan El Kurdi down in Australia. And last but certainly not least, Mr. Bob Moore. Yes. So we started with a Bob, we finished with a Bob. That's how you should always start and finish everything. Absolutely. Bobbing and weaving. We just need a weaver now. Hugo Weaving. If Hugo Weaving started to support us, then we'd have bobbing and weaving. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks ever so much to the, the to the gang. You are literally just well. I can't. I, can't, I You know, it always amazes me that um, people of this kind, Chris, this kind, wonderful people. Can you still stuck in isolation there, Chris? Yeah, I've got a few more days of quarantine. We've obviously uh, come back out here because, well, the schools have all closed, so there was no nothing holding me back in the UK. And Kaya's starting work back here, so we yeah, we've we've headed back out here for a bit. We're in quarantine in the mountains in a beautiful cabin, so there's no complaints here whatsoever. We had a sauna day yesterday and sat outside and with a with an, a, a fire outside. It was it was fantastic. It was Kaya's birthday tomorrow, so uh, wish a happy birthday, Spodcats, and we're gonna just uh, well, we've got got a bit of work to do, and then we're gonna have a little Zoom party um, in the evening for. For the lady's birthday. So how about you? What are you up to? Um, uh, I shall just be working. I'm going to be working this week. No rest for the wicked. Um, I shall be. Oh, no. uh, I'm also working on my um, on my space video I'm doing for the space store. So that'll be the start of the interplanetary podcast YouTube videos that we're doing. Space 101. Yes. First episode is going to be Amazing. about why we know the flat earth, why we know the earth is not flat. I, although I accidentally yeah. kept saying, how we know the earth is flat and had to keep doing a retake. <laughs> very annoying. <laughs> you've, been, you've been taken by them, haven't you? You've been taken in. I am. I'm slowly just subliminally. Slipping, <laughs> slipping over the event horizon of lunacy. 
<laughs> no return. Careful. Be careful. Be, be careful. careful. I'm treading on the edge. <laughs> Happy birthday, Kaya. Happy birthday, Kaya. Be able to play that on the day and it'd be marvellous. So many brownie points. Time to go. It's been lovely once uh, my awesome. first of the year, hopefully the first of many. Very, very excited to be back on board. Bye bye, Sparkats! Bye, Sparkats. Bye, Sparkats. Bye, Sparkats. Bye, Sparkats. Bye bye.